This is actually an episode that I didn't think I would enjoy as much as I did. By memory, I don't enjoy Ishka as a character. And I, I, I still stand by that statement. Again, mostly from memory, speaking of future episodes. But she was actually fine in this episode. In fact, the whole thing was fine in this episode. It was stated before that the intent was to do a Ferengi episode that was intended to be serious, rather than one that was intended to be comedic. Now, this has been something that they've been pushing for since Emissary, that they were trying to establish the Ferengi as an actual species rather than a bunch of clowns. So I'm kind of with that, especially in paper. And we do get a decent amount of, of world-building, for lack of a better way to put it, with regards to the Ferengi and Ferenginar. We go there for the first time, we learn about the stairs and how you could pay for the elevator... Uh, we learn a whole lot about, about women's rights. We'll talk about that more later. Just a lot of little interesting stuff. One of the things I found most interesting is the way that their legal system works. I know that sounds like a weird thing to bring up, but the FCA apparently has legal jurisdiction. Based on what we hear, I would say it's probably the closest equivalent to the judicial branch. And that particular branch, the FCA, likes to work on a basis of money flows in and through the FCA itself to make sure that money keeps flowing through the Ferengi Alliance in general. What I mean by that is, there's a bit where Quark has to bribe Brunt three times in order to find out what he's been charged with, who was being charged, and the specifics of, you know, basically in order to find out what was going to be laid against him. Can you imagine for a moment if... I shouldn't actually say this because this was technically going to stray into controversial territory, but imagine for a moment if a officer shows up and says, Excuse me, sir. Uh, I want you to know that you're under investigation. And that's all that that officer says until you pay the officer specifically in order to find out what it is you've been charged with. Now, that being said, the Ferengi don't go quite, as much as they are financially corrupt, they don't seem to go into the more horrific levels of corruption that, you know, has been shown for several other species throughout fictional history. So... It, it, it kind of reminds me of a quote that Quark gives later on. I, I forget the specifics, but it's like, you know, we don't have war. We don't have all this. It, it, he says it to, to uh, Isisko specifically. We would have found some way to negotiate. We would have found some way to talk through this situation rather than resorting to barbarism and all that fun stuff. Which is funny since so many people consider the Ferengi to be barbarous. Me included, by the way. But that's off topic. We also find out that after he's been charged, he... His mother has already been found guilty. Now, that's the interesting thing, because they are investigating her for three bars of latinum. And that's it. Not the huge financial empire that she's been building off on the side. And I point that out because she has already been determined to be guilty. There's no trial here. There's no jurisdiction. It's just, here is the deal we are offering you. Again, this sound, I, I, I'm trying so hard to avoid controversial topics, but the point is, I'm sure some of you, especially the more cynical out there, are like, well, how is this different from real life? But what I mean by this is, her guilt has already been determined, but the specifics of the sentence have not. And the sentence depends on how exactly the accused reacts to the accusation. You have three days to get her to willingly sign a confession saying she did this, which will also result in the signing over of her profit over to the FCA, and that'll be the end of it. If you fail, she will be sold into indentured servitude, and you will have to pay restitution. And then there's like a third layer, which they don't really talk about all that much uh, in this episode, but it's mentioned in later episodes, where if you decide to not cooperate with any step here, they just fine you over and over and over until you're pissed broke and can't do anything. 
All of that strikes me as an extremely Ferengi way of dealing with things. You're guilty, so what are you going to do about it? Well, if you play ball, it's the mildest possible thing. It's basically, all right, well, this is on record. We'll take the money, and we'll move on. If you decide to fail, or, or so simply fail in, in attempts to uh, cooperate, well, okay, well, then we're going to do something significantly harsher, and we're going to hold you responsible for what we were going to hold her responsible for. And, of course, if you completely stonewall, then we're going to financially destroy you. Very Ferengi way of doing things. It brings up an interesting point for me, though. I've actually talked about this before, and I stand by this statement. One of the things I find interesting is that the Ferengi are terrible businessmen. You ever notice that? I've pointed this out many times in Deep Space Nine, and, and it will come up in TNG several times as well. And it's already come up in Voyager. The Ferengi are crap at business. Now, I, granted, I did literally go to college for accounting and business stuff, so whatever. But even I, a moron who's never really done any professional business work, can, can look at what they're doing and say, well, that's stupid. Why don't you do dot, dot, dot instead? Why don't you go in this direction instead? Now, I point that out because every now and again we do see a Ferengi, usually an individual, who is legitimately good at business. Quark could be argued to be good at business, for example. But I'm talking about actually a higher level than him, like Pell, for example, and Ishka, and Zek. As I've pointed out several times before, Zek has shown multiple times that for all of his <laughs> the fact is that the man really knows his lobes, so to speak. And he really does know how to be a good businessman, a legitimately good one. He even knows how to push the envelope and when to stop pushing the envelope, which is something most Ferengi never learn. In other words, if I was to relate this to Star Wars, I would say that a typical Ferengi is a stupid Sith. Whereas the particularly good Ferengi, like the ones I just referenced, those are the really, those are the good Sith, the true Sith, not the species, the, you know, like Palpatine or, or Revan or uh, Bane, you know, the ones who actually had a brain and knew what they were doing. I know that's a weird parallel, but that just, it just kind of strikes in my brain, and it makes me wonder how the hell the rest of the Ferengi Alliance even runs itself. Two theories on that really quick. First, the rest of the galaxy doesn't really have the economic backing or position necessary to really do anything about the Ferengi as an aggregate. You know, these individual Ferengi may be stupid, but it's hard to stop dealing with Ferengi given how much the influence they have as an overall. I mean, we just saw in TNG in uh, Menage a Troy the, uh, the idea that the Ferengi bring profit to the situation even though they're not really welcome there, because just because of the economic might of the Alliance. The other theory is that the smart ones keep the stupid ones in check. Basically keep them bickering and yelling and ruining their own little lives, while if you zoom out to a macroscopic level, the smart ones are keeping the overall system going. could also be both. So... <clears throat> There's this really great scene towards the beginning of the episode where Cork and Rom are talking with each other. Now, René Abergenois actually directed this episode, and I want to give him credit on this one because the choreography in that scene, it, that had to have taken several takes, because it's actually really brilliant. Cork and Rom are weaving in and out of each other, grabbing separate props from separate sides of the, of the stage, back and forth and back and forth, and constantly pouring. And at the same time, they're both delivering their lines in beat, one to another, basically weaving their performances in and out of each other as they're moving around. It's actually really well done. And I know that sounds like a really weird thing to comment on, but speaking as someone who has done both television and play work significantly, that kind of activity, 
it's harder to coordinate that than it looks, is what I'm trying to say. So definite props are involved there. I also like the fact that Quark associates the Federation with humans. Obviously, so the Federation tends to be a little human-centric, uh, probably because the humans are one of the founding races, but mostly because human makeup is really easy to do on a live-action television show that was made in the 90s. But <laughs> regardless of these facts... I find that interesting because it's a very recurring thing in character for people to assume that the Federation is a homo sapien-only club. Star Trek VI, excuse me. So then the writ of accountability is put up there. I kind of already talked about that. And Quark attempts to hide badly and has to pay to find... I love the fact that he has to pay to find out what he's being charged for. I really do. I'm not even joking about that. Um, who's taking care of Nog while both uh, Quark and Rob leave? I'm really curious about that. Uh, so, they get back to Ferenginar, and this is when the bulk of the episode really starts. This is my house, my house is my house, and then Brunt says, as are its contents. Like, that's a usual thing you have to say. Again, we see how financial interactions have gotten to the point of being so rote amongst Ferengi culture that it's normal. We see in this episode you have to pay to find out what you're being charged with, you have to pay to enter someone else's house. You have to pay to use the elevator. You have to pay to stand. You have to pay to sit. You have to pay to get a secretary to do his job. Now, all of these are minor transactions, but that's my point. I, fi I find the Ferengi culture and the economic infrastructure fascinating here because what it means is there's basically a built-in system to ensure that there's a constant flow of small amounts of currency to make sure that at the smaller level, at the, at the ground level of the ocean, basically, that there is a continuous pull of currency going through all of the, the lower echelons. It's a fascinating concept. There's actually been some thought in real life to trying to enforce this kind of a thing in real life. Obviously, people would not like the fact of you know, having to drop a quarter in order to, to you know, uh, walk into a grocery store or to be able to get a secretary to do something or any of the examples I just gave. That would obviously be very frustrating. But there are, if you ignore the personal perspective, there are some legitimate economic benefits to that concept. It's also the kind of thing that has been used in a very, uh, very few small trial-scale things, uh, usually more in the form of renting rather than using. I'll give you a direct example. The grocery store Aldi's, which some of you may or may not have heard of, it's a grocery store chain here in the States. Uh, one of the way ways that they try to keep their costs down, their expenses down, I should say, and thus keeping their costs down so it's cheaper for you to buy their products, is they basically have no overhead whatsoever. <laughs> like, you know, usually two people running the entire store, no big di displays, no fancy anything. It's just basically a bunch of shelves and food on the shelves, and that's it. But I bring up specifically the fact that in order to get one of the shopping carts, you have to put in a quarter. Something about that is fascinating to me. You have to rent a shopping cart if you go to Aldi's. Now, I say rent specifically because it would, if you take it back and you know use this process of returning the shopping cart, it puts the quarter right back out. That's why I say renting. If for whatever reason you don't care... Well, you don't have to, and they just keep the quarter, and someone else will come and collect the shopping cart later. It's an interesting method of doing something, and it's... <sighs> I don't want to sound like I'm in favor of microtransactions, because I know that... I just realized that's what it sounds like. Because microtransactions are a separate thing, and I, I could talk for hours about that. But it's just a fascinating concept to see this kind of economic flow-through being used on an everyday level. It's just like an ordinary level in Quark, uh, in Quark society. In Ferengi society. Now, so they're like, yeah, here's the home. Um, 
I mentioned the fact that the mother's guilty by con uh, by by default. I already kind of mentioned the legal side of that. Let's talk about some of the things that they discussed that females have to do in this episode. Now, this has actually already come up briefly before in several other episodes. Now, the clothing thing is an old thing. But apparently also uh, the, the women in the society are supposed to chew the food for the males. Not allowed to have clothes, of course. Not allowed to talk to strangers. That's a weird one for me. They're not allowed to earn money, of course. They're not allowed to travel. All of these things are kind of strange in their own right, especially given the fact that it effectively locks down the female role uh, to an extreme degree. Now, let me just get the obvious out of the way. No, I'm not in favor of all that. That's stupid. What I find myself wondering is why the creators of Star Trek decided to go ahead and adhere to that kind of model for their culture. Because there's only two ways to make something if you are a real person making a work of fiction. You can very carefully put thought and effort into it to try and make the best, most polished thing you can so it makes as much sense as possible and it's all logical and self-consistent. Or you can throw stuff up on screen and just say, screw it. Now I mention this because the Ferengi are actually both. I don't want to speak ill of a dead man, but Roddenberry definitely did the latter when it came to the initial design of the Ferengi. Now, we've talked about this before, and I don't feel like retreading this ground, but the initial design of the Ferengi, to put it as bluntly as I possibly can, made no sense. And I am not the only person to say this. Many other people who analyze fiction in Star Trek in, 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 Star Trek in particular have pointed out how the Ferengi, as initially designed, do not make sense. And I agree with that statement. Obviously, I, I did it myself. I've already discussed this during the last outpost of nothing else. But then, people who obviously do care about their craft, like Iris Stephen Bear, like Ronald D. Moore, like Michael Piller, sat down and said, all right, there's other people. I, I shouldn't just list it with those three. There was others. Um, I know Wolf was involved in the creation of the Ferengi as well. I'm not sure who else. Uh, anyways, several other people sat down and was like, okay, let's make the Ferengi actually work. That is one of the highlights of Deep Space Nine, in my opinion. As much as I tend to poke fun at it and amused by it, one of the best things that Deep Space Nine did is it added real depth to several cultures and organizations within Star Trek, arguably really fleshed out the Federation, the Klingons, the Romulans, definitely fleshed out the Bajorans, the Cardassians, the Ferengi, the Dominion. A lot of this depth and what we nowadays just kind of consider to be normal aspects of Star Trek really were developed here on this very show. So that brings us to the Ferengi. How does this society function? Now, I'm not saying necessarily that it can't, but the question of how does it must be answered from the creation of a, you know, from the creation of a fiction perspective. How does this actually work? Now, I do have an answer here, and my answer is people like Ishka and Pell. Now, for those of you who don't remember who Pell is, that was the female uh, Ferengi we actually saw before who fell in love with Quark, you know, back in... <sighs> I don't remember the episode. I'm sorry. A previous episode. <laughs> I don't always remember episode names. And it is my opinion that there are a sufficient number of female Ferengi who basically keep the system running, that they're the ones who help to give financial advice to take care of home effects, to run figures, or to actually do some of the more non-personal elements of actually maintaining the economic infrastructure of the Ferengi, in addition to doing things like taking care of children and raising them and watching over the family and protecting the husband and all that fun sort of thing. In other words, a pseudo-similar approach to how the Klingons usually approach the male-female dichotomy. The males are the ones who have the position and the power and the military, but the women hold the house. 
as has been said several times. And the women are in charge of the house and everything that that means. They basically have all of the political power and all of the economic power. This has actually already been addressed even in TNG, but also in Deep Space Nine. Something kind of like that, except less, uh, less overt, eh, less honest. In other words, the idea that in Klingon society, everyone knows that the women run the houses and keep things running. But in Ferengi society, no one really realizes that the women keep things running. That's my best guess. I'm curious as ever what you guys think on this one. But I do find myself wondering, how many women are there like Pell and Ishka? How many other women are there who actively disagree with this system and want to push against it? Now, considering the Alliance has kind of kept the same thing going for a long time... It's very likely to say that there have probably been women and men over the years who do not agree with the system of severe caste distinction between genders. But what I think, and again, this is just personal opinion, I think that as the Alliance really started to enter the galactic scene, which, if you remember, only really started happening within about the last 10 to 15 years, the Ferengi Alliance, for all its great economic might and power, didn't really start becoming a player on the galactic stage until, you know, prior to TNG, just a few years prior to TNG. So, having said that, I, f I like to think, this is just, again, headcanon at this point, and as ever, love to hear your guys' thoughts, that the continued interaction with alien species slowly introduced new societal concepts that would filter down throughout the people, and bit by bit, more and more people would become more and more accepting of the ideas of women not being property, basically. Now, Ishka herself, based on timeline, would have been born before that period of time, before that, you know, everything, uh, this whole potential renaissance, which may or may not have happened. But that also would have meant she would have been about of the age necessary. Actually, I guess that's wrong, isn't it? There's actually a, a line much later. They never say Ishka's age, but they mention that she has been in this business for over a century. So actually, I have no idea about that. I take that point back. Pell was supposed to be young, but again, we don't know her age either. We know Ferengi live very long. Zek is supposed to be ancient, even by Ferengi standards. I don't know. Like I said, it doesn't quite make sense. And anything we say will basically have to involve kind of either retconning things or just kind of hand-waving things. If anybody else has any ideas, as ever, love to hear them. So, there's this actual line where Ishka says this isn't about money. Now, I find that line interesting because I don't fully believe her. I do think she has Ferengi business sense. It is well established, not only in this episode, but in later episodes, that she actually is a pretty good businesswoman and that she is the person who basically is the reason that they managed to stay financially solvent when their father would actually listen to him and after their father passed away. Makes sense to me. But she says it's not about the money and that Quark has always been generous with the stipend. Now, I find that very curious because one of the most interesting things about Quark to me is for all that he says, his actions and intent clearly show that there is a decent person in there. Not just by Ferengi standards or by human standards, but by multiple different standards. That this is someone who really does want to take care of his mother, who really does want to take care of his brother, who really does want to help out in, in ways that he can. He just wants to do it in a way that also profits himself. And I think that there's, there's room for that kind of a multidimensional character in Star Trek, especially Deep Space Nine. They call me a weirdo. But I mentioned that as well because Quark himself is a different type of businessman than Ishka. Quark is the kind of person who is, to put this into military terms, he's on the front line. He's the kind of person who is actually out there 
you know, pounding pavement, so to speak, trying to actually get work done personally, and manages to make that work for him. He's very good at that. He is, and let's be honest with ourselves, a people person. It's actually one of his weirdly more endearing traits, despite the fact that he tends to come off as snarly or Ferengi or selfish or, or crude or whatever. The man's a people person. I've said that many times, and it's been well established at this point in history. So he's the person who's out there on the front lines. Ishka, she's a speculator. Now, if you don't happen to know what that means, it's a financial term. Basically, to summarize as best as I can, it's someone who sits back in a room with a bunch of charts and a bunch of data figures and allocates financial resources at a distance from one thing to another, speculating on the market and trying to pull back returns on investments. Different type of business, and one that she is apparently extremely good at. But it's not like Quark is stupid. There's actually this really great bit. Uh, so Cork finds out about the truth of this nature. Rom tries to calm him down. Cork's just kind of lost it a little bit. <laughs> I love Armin Shimmerman. He's just like, eh. And um, I, although, uh, special praise to all the actors, by the way, in this episode. Uh, obviously, Armin Shimmerman and Max Grodinchik are awesome. I also want to say uh, Andrea Martin. Again, I haven't done the ruminations on the future episodes yet, but I have to say, on memory alone, I think I like her better as Ishka than the woman who had played her in the future. I don't, I don't remember her name right now. Please forgive me. Oh, and of course, lest I forget, Jeffrey Combs in his very first appearance as Brunt, because Brunt is awesome. Okay, that's not quite true. Jeffrey Combs is awesome. I'm pretty sure Brunt would have been slimy and disgusting if not for Jeffrey Combs, but I can say that about a lot of characters. Anywho, Hoyun, <coughs> excuse me, um, we haven't even met him yet. So, <laughs> Rom tries to calm his brother down. And they start talking uh, back and forth, and Rom starts to rant at Quark about how bad hit their father was at business. And Quark's like, no, you're not supposed to speak ill of him. What I find interesting about that argument is that Rom not only looked into it, but Rom would know because Rom isn't good at business. Like it or not, Rom is not good at business. This is a well-established character trait. In fact, as Nog has pointed out, Rom should have actually got into engineering. He's good at it. In fact, he will continue to be established as good at it in the future. But he's a Ferengi, so he had to go into business, and he sucked at that. This is actually another thing that makes me question Ferengi society. The very idea that they almost rely on either constantly screwing up internally, which I know that sounds strange, but that is actually a viable economic model, as, as absolutely bizarre as that sounds, because that means you've got, constantly got services, goods, and repair being done to try and keep the system going when it constantly stumbles over itself. Just look at consulting in the 90s for an example of what I'm talking about. Anyways, <clears throat> but that's possible. Or they are so reliant on external, you know, outsourcing, basically, trying to get other species to perform the, the things that they need to function and to, to actually properly have certain elements of their society because it, it's supposed to be you're a Ferengi, you go into business. That's just how it works, right? So how the hell do they do, do they do anything else? Remember, the Ferengi Marauder was originally designed to be a match for a Galaxy-class cruiser. Now, having gone through history at this point, the Marauder is not actually a match for a cruiser. It's a pretty fast ship, but it's nowhere near a military match. But at the same time, you look at that like, how do they even build this thing, right? I, I'm getting off topic. So Rom rants about this, and they go... <laughs> I'm sorry, the scene where they go up the steps, and he's like, oh, wow, well, dilithium's up. That's That's nice to know. Oh, I didn't even see Brian. Oh, here. Here's a slip. And I'll go over here. Oh, wait, wait. How much is it to sit? Three? Okay. I'd rather stand. Oh, that's one. Okay, I'll give you two for the chair. Rom comes up. Oh, my God. 
Oh my god. So many steps. <laughs> By the way, I mentioned earlier, just, just to mention in brief, to give it a down-level perspective for any videos and study economics, the staircase and elevator and charging for the elevator, that's basically one of the, the best analogy, literal analogies I've ever seen for a fixing its own problems economy, like I was just referencing. In other words, they have deliberately crafted a problem so that they could deliberately craft a solution to a problem which shouldn't have existed, which they can then charge for. That's what I meant by that kind of a thing. They make this huge staircase, but, you know, they didn't have to make the staircase, right? That was not a necessary component of making this building. There are plenty of other ways they could have done this. But they make the staircase so people don't want to make it, so it is now a problem. And here's the solution. Elevator, have fun. Anyways, Rob comes up, they talk back and forth, and... There's this really, really great scene, which is actually probably my favorite scene in the episode, where Rom just explodes at both of them. This is probably the first time we've really gotten to see Max Grodenschick really act. Um, it's not like he hasn't act... Um, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. I've heard it before. It's what I'm going off of. It's not like he hasn't had a chance to act before. He's actually been a semi-recurring occurrence for all three seasons. But rather, he just gets an entire scene basically to himself, where he just explodes at both of them. What I love is the specific argument he uses to both. First, he says that Quark shows no respect to their mother. Now, that's interesting. That respect is apparently something that is required of a gender that apparently isn't allowed to talk to strangers, is forced to eat food, and all those other horrible things, right? But no, he, is, he shows no respect to her, and that is true. Quark doesn't seem to show any particular respect to Ishka. And then he goes to mother, and this is the interesting one. He says, you know that if Quark finds out, found out about your financial records, eventually the FCA will too. If he didn't catch that, that means he basically just gave quiet praise to his brother for being able to figure out what was actually going on on his own with no additional resources. And he implies that eventually the FCA, which is less competent than Quark, will eventually be able to figure that out as well. It's a subtle little thing, but it helps to showcase some of the mentality there. And we get to see some of the interweaving connections between these three characters, despite the fact that they all have problems with each other. So, Ishka... Quark, they sit down, they talk about it, and there's this nice bit where we basically find out that for all that, that Quark's father was a terrible businessman, but he was a good father, he was a good husband, I get the really strong impression that just like Rom, Quark and Rom's father shouldn't have gone into business, right? But he did, because you're supposed to, because that's what a good Ferengi does. And it didn't work out. So she was the one who had to kind of, you know, deal with the economic schooling of the situation because she was far better at business. And as is implied and then stated outright later, she is the reason why Quark has the good business sense he does because she taught it to him. Again, I get this impression that the women serve a very critical and critical function to the inf economic infrastructure of these of this society. It's the only thing that makes any sense to me. So they decide, okay, we're going to go through with this. Brunt comes over, gets his confession, they turn over the money. Like I said, full cooperation, which means the least amount of penalty imposed by the FCA. So he leaves. Quark and her are like, hey, you know, they leave. And then Rom and her are like, hey, you only gave them a third, right? She's like, yeah, I'll keep the other two-thirds. I'll try and hide it more carefully this time. <laughs> In other words, that she is still thinking like a businesswoman, a smart businesswoman. And I know that sounds like a strange thing, but it is a lot cheaper and easier to be like, oh, you got me, 
and to basically pay off your pursuers, in this case the FCA, than to try and keep struggling out of some sake of pride or whatever. Now, granted, she did obviously have pride in this matter. Obviously, that was one of her big points, was that she was against the treatment of Ferengi women, and I'm with her on that. But you could kind of tell how once she finally decided to do this for Quark, she also decided to have a good business sense about doing it. We will, of course, be seeing Ishka in the future. Now, I'm sorry, I just realized I haven't talked about Cisco or Cassidy Yates at all. Um, so Cisco and Cassidy Yates do have their first date in this episode, and it's the first episode that where Penny Johnson actually shows up in the show. She's the woman who plays Cassidy Yates. I like how they, they bond over baseball. There's something just wonderful human about that, which I don't have much else to say about. But I do want to say two things really quick. First of all, her brother is on Cestus Three. Now, that I've, I've looked into this. That was apparently a deliberate reference. For those of you who don't remember, that's the planet where Kirk ended up fighting the Gorn. Remember that one? Good episode, by the way. Actually, a lot better than I remembered when I went back and rewatched it a couple years ago. Because, I mean, everyone just remembers the fight between the Gorn, right? But there's actually a lot of episode other than that in that episode. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. So that implies that that planet was eventually either, you know, settled or they, they resolved their differences with the Gorn, or maybe they just took it from the Gorn. I mean, we don't really see a lot of the Gorn in, in modern Trek, so maybe the Gorn just got, I don't know, conquered by the Klingons and became part of the Klingon Empire. That sounds logical, right? <laughs> um, so I like that little reference. But I also like the tiny little bit of world building where Cisco mentions, why don't you just beam it over? And she says, well, yeah, but you'd need to have a, you know, a decent transporter, like a Mark VII, to do that. Can I just say that I absolutely adore the idea of different qualities of transporters? Because that, that makes perfect sense, right? I mean, your basic transporter, like, say, TOS era, can get you from point A to point B. But in order to do far more complex things, like usually happens on, say, TNG, you would need a more advanced transporter. And so it makes sense that there's these iterations as the tech gets better and better, and so it can do more than just get you from point A to point B, but it can allow you to do other modifications and whatnot. And it makes perfect sense that Cisco, who's been in Starfleet for most of his life, is just used to having access to the best transporters available, you know, the, the most recent development, because Starfleet pushes out the best of its tech out to its ships as it's developed. Therefore... To him, this solution is easy. To her, well, she's working with a Mark V, which hasn't, which hasn't even been in production for years and years, right? I like that little tiny tidbit of world building there. It helps to make the setting make a little bit more sense. And it's also an interesting solution to a problem. They never actually use this solution, but it's a fascinating solution to the problem. Here's the thing. I've actually done this myself within my own settings. I've seen some other settings do this as well. The setting may have access to this super advanced tech, but that doesn't mean everyone in that setting has access to that tech, right? In other words, if you want to pull tools away or out of the hands of your protagonists so you, you as a writer have an easier time of challenging them, then you can still say things like replicators and holodecks and transporters exist, but the ones that are at the availability of the protagonists are of lesser grade or quality or simply cruder than the ones that are available to the, you know, the top-of-the-line military, right? It's a nice way to kind of even things out. Now, of course, they don't do anything with this in Deep Space Nine. It was just an idea that was in my head as they were talking about this whole Mark VII, Mark V transporter thing, which I really enjoyed. Anyways, that's all I've got. Hope you guys have enjoyed. I'll see you guys next time.